Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series on the uh, question of thirst. Uh, now, if you remember in the last episode, Rob, we talked about the the biology of uh, of thirst anticipation, of uh, anticipation of the quenching of thirst, because there's this interesting thing where, you know, after you drink a glass of water, when you've been dehydrated, it, it takes some number of minutes, maybe on the order of tens of minutes, before that water actually gets absorbed through the digestive system and, and ends up in the blood and, and makes a difference systemically throughout the body. Mm-hmm. And yet, you, you still feel that that thirst quenchiness uh, after you have just the first glass of water. You're not continuously chugging for 10 to 20 minutes, at least uh, hopefully not. But to start off today, I wanted to come back to the question of how it is that the body detects uh, the, the and anticipates the coming changes in your blood, in your blood osmolality, which again is the concentration of dissolved substances like mineral salts in your uh, in your body's water content, and uh, how it anticipates those changes to provide you that delicious feeling of having your thirst quenched by a glass of water. Now, in the previous episodes, we already talked about a few ways that uh, the the mouth and the throat might detect the. Uh, the introduction of water into the body and and sort of send signals to the brain saying, "Hey, okay, you can put the thirst on hold for now. There there are there are soon coming changes to the body's hydration levels." And one of the ideas we talked about was the possibility that temperature plays a role because maybe there there's some evidence that uh, the power of water to cool the mouth and throat sends quenching signals to the brain. And uh, also, there was some evidence that rodents were using sour taste receptors in the mouth to detect the presence of water. But, Rob, maybe you can set me straight on this one. I don't think it was clear that triggering these sour taste receptors actually led to the quenching of thirst. Rather, it seemed to encourage more drinking behavior when the mouse was thirsty. Is that right? Yes, that's my understanding of these findings. But I was actually reading about um, a few more studies on exactly this question of, of how thirst quenching happens. What is the mechanism that leads to these changes in the brain that tell you, aha, you are, thou art now quenched? So uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was a, a study that I was reading about in a New York Times article from 2018 by Veronique Greenwood called uh, You Get Thirsty and Drink, How Does Your Brain Signal You've Had Enough? And this is referring to a paper that I think uh, came up in passing in the previous episode, but it was by uh, Vinit Augustine et al. in Nature in 2018 called Hierarchical Neural Architecture Underlying Thirst Regulation. And this research has been looking at exactly this question we just brought up, and they confirmed that, of course, there uh, there is a, a complex of neurons in the brain that appear to cease activity after a thirsty mouse drinks water. So there are some neurons that are apparently signaling that generating that thirst motivation state, but then when a rodent takes some water in through the mouth, those neurons shut up. They, they go quiet. So this would be the neural mechanism to register quenching, but the question is, what is the direct mechanism that, that, uh, that leads to the changes in those neurons? Uh, now, this New York Times article summarizes the findings as explained by the first author on that paper, uh, Vinit Augustine, quote, 
Intriguingly, what these cells are responding to is not the presence of water itself, Mr. Augustine said. The researchers discovered that letting a mouse take big gulps of water would spur the neurons into action, but giving it water in gel form, which had to be chewed before it could be swallowed, did not. Neither did providing water in tiny two-second-long sips, even when the animals consumed the same total amount of water. In fact, giving the mice oil to drink had just the same effect on the neurons as gulping water. Uh, so that last part is a little gross, but based on this finding, uh, it, it would kind of imply that a major mechanism leading these thirst neurons to, to say, okay, uh, thirst has been quenched, would have something to do with like muscular movements in the throat, the kind of gulping that you do when you're guzzling down a bunch of water really fast, but technically maybe it doesn't even have to be water, it's just any fluid that you're gulping. I mean, as humans, we don't, I guess, drink a lot of just straight oil. But we do drink a lot of things that are, that are uh, to varying degrees removed from, uh, from, from uh, you know, from, from just uh, neutral water. Uh, so uh, this would make sense. Right. But if you, if you hydrate yourself in some other way, so like the examples they use, say consuming water in gel form where you can't like gulp it down really, mm -hmm. that still hydrates you. But that apparently does not lead to this immediate quenching signal in the brain. Uh, similarly with drinking water in very small isolated sips, uh, I guess in those cases you would eventually hydrate yourself. And your thirst will eventually go away, but it will be more likely that your body has to just become systemically hydrated before the thirst goes away. It's not that sudden quenching reward feeling. Mm. Now, there was an interesting detail offered here about reasons that the body might need to have this reaction where we turn off thirst very quickly after getting a drink. Like, why not just wait for your blood osmolality to reach the ideal level? Well, uh, in, in previous episodes, we, we talked about one reason for this, which is that, you know, if you actually did have to wait for your, your body's water content to get all leveled out right before your thirst went away, you might, you might like kill yourself drinking gallons and gallons of water because, you know, over the course of the tens of minutes that it takes for this change to, to take hold. Mm-hmm. But there's another reason one of the authors of this paper brings up that's in this uh, Greenwood article in the Times, quote, aside from the specter of water intoxication, there are good reasons to drink only the minimum amount necessary. When an animal lowers its head to drink, Dr. Oka speculated, and that's Dr. Yuki Oka, uh, it's in quite a vulnerable position. Quote, if you double the time of ingestion, that should double the risk of being prey, he said. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, it, I think it is true that in the natural environment, as we brought up in the previous episode, going for water is often putting yourself in a vulnerable position, you know, maybe um, exposing yourself from hiding or shelter and sort of turning your attention away from scanning your surroundings. Yeah, I mean, in, in many cases, too, the, the access point to the water might not provide much in the way of cover for smaller animals. And then for larger animals, uh, you know, there may be uh, you know bodily positions they have to get into uh, to to drink that put them uh, in a greater state of vulnerability. Like I'm thinking of uh, of a giraffe, for instance. Though mm. a giraffe, of course, is a pretty formidable animal, uh, but uh, but still, it you, there's a certain awkwardness present when it actually has to drink water. Sorry, I just started thinking about gamer fuel. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, this is this as I have no research to, to back this up. This is just observational uh, material for me. But uh, I think everyone knows that I, I enjoy watching the squirrels. And um, we have a, a bird bath uh, uh, outside uh, near our feeders. And the bird bath is positioned right up against the fence. And the squirrels drink from that all the time. But I wonder how much I wonder how much of that is that they're able to drink from the bird bath while uh, essentially remaining in a vertical position attached to the to the fence. Hmm. Uh, like they don't have to you know go across a clearing. They have I guess pretty good cover for a squirrel. Although squirrels are are bold in other ways that you know make you think that they're they're less concerned or they're or they're in control of the situation as far as potential predators go. So if you happen to have sitter squirrels and rover squirrels, your birdbath is positioned in such a way that even the sitter squirrels could could get to it. I guess so. But then, it, yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what anyone else out there has observed with their squirrels and drinking water from birdbaths and uh, other water, water sources. Uh, do, do they seem to like one thing versus the other? I don't know. They certainly drink more water than my cat. I'll, I'll give them that. Hmm. Well, anyway, there was another article from the very next year, also in the New York Times, also by Greenwood, covering follow-up research from some of the same scientists. So this was published uh, May 31st, 2019, uh, just called The Neurobiology of Thirst. And this is summarizing uh, a study published in 2019 in the journal Neuron, where the authors uh, – oh, again, the first author on this one was uh, Vanit Augustine, and it was called Temporally and Spatially Distinct Thirst Satiation Signals. Um, and the authors here found that the pleasure we get from drinking when thirsty is, uh, once again, not directly related to hydration. It is a reward pathway separated by both time and space from the body's hydration and osmolality uh, monitoring mechanisms. And uh, one of the major findings in this paper is that though drinking water is associated with a dopamine release, uh, this this is a, a typical signal that the brain is expecting a reward, right? You know, things that you want, you want to get and feel good when you get them. The, that's often, that involves a dopamine release. Uh, but the the feeling of reward in the brain here is apparently not tied to becoming hydrated after being dehydrated, but specifically to the act of drinking water through the mouth. So if you're dehydrated and then you suddenly receive water through an IV or even via a direct injection into the stomach, your thirst will eventually go away after your body adjusts to the new fluid levels, but you won't get that feeling of reward satisfaction or the, the corresponding dopamine release. Those come specifically from the activity of drinking, the gulping of water through the mouth. And picking up on this, I was actually looking at one more paper uh, that had an interesting finding I wanted to mention. Uh, this other one was a little earlier. This was from 2016, published in Nature, called Thirst Neurons Anticipate the Homeostatic Consequences of Eating and Drinking. And this is by Zimmerman et al. And uh, this study found, among other things, a dual-track monitoring system for thirst management. So uh, along the lines we've already been talking about, it, it found that if you take mice and you give them some salt and make them thirsty, drinking water rapidly inhibits neurons in uh, a region of the brain called the subfornical organ or SFO. And that leads to thirst quenching. And of course, this is before there is any notable change in blood osmolality. But it also found that if you take these thirsty mice and you give them very salty water and, and the opportunity to drink it, 
They will drink it, and initially they will gulp it down, and it will inhibit the SFO neurons and apparently quench thirst just like the fresh water. But the quenching doesn't last for very long. They write, quote, This initial decline was reversed after approximately one minute. This indicates that the rapid anticipatory response to drinking has at least two components, an immediate signal that tracks fluid ingestion and a delayed signal that reports on fluid tonicity, uh, possibly generated by an esophageal or gastric osmosensor. So if you put all of this together, it seems like you've got at least three different time-dependent levels of, of sort of the body's quench watch. Uh, so you put them all together and you've got one system that's like, are you gulping fluid? If you are, oh, that's very good. Very good. <laughs> Thou art quenched. But then there's a second system on a slight delay from that one, roughly one minute of delay in mice. It's like, wait a second. What exactly was that you were just gulping? Was that oil or was that super <laughs> salty water? You know, what, what are you trying to pull? And if it was, well, if it was not good fresh water, then it will cancel, cancel the quench and return the thirst. And then finally, I guess there's just the direct blood volume and osmolality monitoring, which is on a much greater delay than the other two. Uh, so first of all, reminder, if, if anyone else, uh, if anyone's interested in the whole drinking saltwater thing, we did a whole episode on drinking salt water uh, a while back. Uh, yeah. but you should be able to find that in the archives. Not a good idea was, no. was one of the main <laughs> findings there. <laughs> but, the, but the other thing I, I think, and we've kind of, we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but um, you, you know, it, it would be a mistake to think of like, okay, it's just, you know, what's drinking water, water in, water out. Um, you know, even if you, you, you then acknowledge, okay, well, you know, the levels have to be just right, but it's, it's more than that. It's not like uh, organisms just one day were like, Hey, there's water. We can drink that. We should use this to our advantage. No, like we are of water. So right. it's like water in am water, uh, evolved out of things in water, um, et cetera. So it's, uh, it makes sense that there would be a more complex relationship with multiple triggers that, uh, you know, that, that we're, we're still trying to understand. Yeah, I mean, as we said at the very beginning, you you are the direct descendant of creatures that long ago lived in the ocean, and all of your ancestors, just like you, brought the ocean with you onto land. The ocean is now inside your skin. Yes. Oh, and before I wrap up, uh, this last study I mentioned also documents interesting evidence for the uh, the oral cooling mechanism of thirst quenching that I brought up mm. in the previous episode. Uh, so the authors here say that, uh, quote, we found that applying cold but not room temperature metal to the oral cavity of awake, thirsty mice was sufficient to rapidly inhibit SFO neurons. Thus, temperature-dependent modulation of SFO neurons may explain the enigmatic connection between oral cooling and thirst, including why thirsty rodents will avidly lick cold metal, and humans report that sucking on ice chips rapidly relieves thirst. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that with sucking on ice chips, though. Though, obviously, I mean, that's, I think that's something we all do if we have uh, access to uh, iced mm -hmm. drinks. Though, of course, the thing with, with ice, of course, is that ice melts in your mouth as well and actually yeah. serves to hydrate you. Right, but that the, the cooling effect of having the ice in the mouth may uh, provide a level of, of thirst-quenching uh, sensation that goes beyond the actual amount of water you're taking in from that ice. This gives me a great idea. Um, so 
uh, showrunners and so forth of The Witcher, if you're listening, I would love to see a scene where Henry Cavill's uh, Witcher character uh, shares some wisdom, and he's like, uh, "Sometimes when I'm when I'm thirsty, I just have a good lick of my sword. Takes care of it, you know. That would be great." And you have a scene there where he's just kind of licking his uh, the blade of his sword. I'd never heard this before that apparently thirsty thirsty rodents will lick cold metal, but uh, yeah, I, guess that I had makes not sense. either. Yeah. But it, and if it's good enough for mice, it's good enough for The Witcher. I, I think old Geralt's just going to – that's that's how you cut your tongue, buddy. That's how you cut your tongue. <laughs> oh, you know, it reminds me of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. We have that wonderful scene where um, Gary Oldman's elderly uh, Dracula uh, licks the blood from the uh, the straight razor. Ugh. Yeah. See, he was thirsty, and he quenched the thirst, but also, hopefully, the, the, the blade was cold enough that it, that also had an effect on him. Well, I guess after all these studies we looked at on on uh, on the quenching mechanism, I'm wondering. So, two main different ones have emerged. One is the oral cooling mechanism, and the other is the gulping mechanism. You know, the the muscular movements in the throat mm-hmm. as you're swallowing large amounts of water. Uh, and I'm I guess I'm not sure if these two different explanations are competing or if they're complementary. Maybe they both play a role in in regulating these uh, thirst neurons in the SFO. I, I'm not sure. Hmm. Now, given all the things we've discussed about the complexity of thirst sensations and water acquisition by various organisms, I thought it might be uh, be interesting to, to look at a couple of examples that in different ways seem to hijack mechanisms of related to thirst and uh, our relationship with water, uh, well, not only ours, but also some other organisms, for the benefit of a life form. Not the life mm. form that is... Uh, that is uh, potentially thirsty, but uh, a life form that is uh, uh, that is hijacking that organism, uh, such as a parasite or a virus. Oh, interesting. So uh, the first one I want to mention here is uh, is one that definitely affects humans, and that is rabies. Now, I imagine I think everyone has heard of rabies. Uh, if not, buckle in because I'm going to share a little bit. Uh, though this is obviously a topic that uh, you know we could really bust out if we wanted to and um, and give a full episode treatment, but even if you're just vaguely familiar with rabies, uh, you know you might not grasp the full danger and horror of this particular zoonotic viral disease. I think a while back I've read at least somebody making the case that that rabies is is a contender for like the worst disease known. Yeah, it is pretty horrifying, and for a, a lot of people in. Um, in the world, particularly in, let's say, the United States, you're lucky enough to to live largely removed from it. Um, I, I think that the U.S. is sometimes class, classified uh, as being uh, free of canine rabies. Now, there are still cases of canine rabies that pop up, and there are deaths that occur, but uh, but not at the same rate as, as other parts of the world where the, the problem has not been contained as well. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, rabies is caused by the virus Lysavirus, which essentially means rage poison. It's named for the Greek goddess Lyssa, the goddess of rage, fury, and rabies, uh, the the daughter of Nyx, sprung from the blood of Uranus, um, and uh, and she pops up in different tales. Like for instance, at the urging of Hera, she inflicts madness on Heracles, uh, and in some tellings, she's also involved in the punishment of the hunter Actaeon, who's torn apart by his own mad hunting dogs. And in memory serves, there are some interesting uh, uh, treatments of this uh, this latter tale in art. Mm, yeah. 
I think he uh, he looked at a god or something to that effect. It's, you know, you don't have to do much to get uh, torn apart by dogs when you're dealing with the uh, the the Greek pantheon. Yeah, I don't remember all the details, but I think he he makes Artemis angry for some reason, and then he he's a hunter, but then he's transformed into the quarry, like he's transformed into a stag mm-hmm. or something, and then his own hunting dogs hunt That's him. That's right. There's some transformation yeah. involved there as well. So uh, humans have been exposed to rabies for a very long time. It's um, it's thought that it probably originated in old world bats and especially flourished during the heyday of uh, of dog domestication. So it is uh, you know it is it is uh, definitely tied to uh, uh, the canine world. Mm-hmm. According to the history of rabies in the Western Hemisphere by uh, Velasco Villa et al., published in Antiviral Research. Um, the earliest record of a disease affecting humans that's consistent with rabies and associated with dogs is found in the uh, Eshnuna cuneiform law tablets in ancient Mesopotamia dating back to the 18th through 19th centuries BCE. Wow. Yeah, and I believe, uh, if memory served, it, it concerns like laws concerning um, dogs biting people, like if you you have a dog and it bites somebody. Hmm. And of course, we have other uh, references uh, to, uh, to, to either cases that seem like they could be rabies or we feel pretty strongly are referring to rabies. Uh, Aristotle wrote, seemed to have wrote of it uh, in 330 BCE, quote, dogs suffer from the madness. This causes them to become very irritable and all animals they bite become diseased. Democritus and Hippocrates also wrote of it as well, and there are com- uh, comparisons to raging dogs in the Iliad that uh, it seems like maybe you're less certain that this is referring, because of course a dog can rage, I guess, it doesn't have to be rabid, uh, mm-hmm. but there are also mentions of the dog star Orion exerting a, a malignant influence on human health. Mm. And uh, and rabies is just a terrible disease, especially when you really get into uh, what it can do to uh, an organism and what it can do to a human being. Uh, today, it's vaccine preventable, and the vaccines uh, keep improving. But once clinical symptoms appear, it is 100% fatal. According to the World Health Organization, in 99% of cases, domestic dogs are responsible for spreading it to humans. Again, in the United States, it is effectively, uh, we've, we're effectively canine uh, rabies-free, though you will still find uh, cases that occur and deaths that occur. So um, it's, it's still possible, but it is largely under control. Mm-hmm. In other parts of the world, it's not the case. And so, um, you know, this is all a great reminder of why it is important uh, to uh, get your dog a rabies vaccine and to also get yourself uh, immunized if you come into contact with the disease. Right. And that time is very important there. Right. Yeah. So the, the incubation period for rabies is typically two to three months, but may vary from one week to a year. And I think it depends on like the viral load, uh, and, you know, being introduced into your body and, and some other factors. Mm-hmm. And then there are two forms of the disease that are possible in humans. So once, you know, this virus is in your system, uh, one version is paralytic rabies. This only occurs in about 20% of cases, and it consists of gradual muscle paralyzation, coma, and death. Uh, It's often misdiagnosed, but uh, again, like 20% of cases, this is what occurs. The other, however, is the the incarnation of, of rabies that 
certainly brings to mind these ideas of strange curses from the gods, you know, the really uh, horrible stuff, and that's furious rabies. Symptoms here include hyperactivity, excitable behavior, hydrophobia, the fear of water, and sometimes uh, aerophobia as well, fear of drafts of fresh air or, you know, blasts of air, that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, death occurs in these cases within a few days due to cardiac arrest. Now, I got to admit, I've always heard uh, rabies described as or associated with this idea of hydrophobia, which obviously, yeah, that means fear of water. But I, I never knew exactly what to make of that. Like, what does that mean in, in practice? Yeah, because uh, it's, you know, when you start thinking about like the things that a, a viral infection does, like, you know, to, to what extent is is it about prolonging that virus or, or, or you know, achieving something in its, um, uh, you know, in, in, in its cycle. Um, and, uh, and as you look into it, it's, it's really quite interesting. So, um, again, this is the really horrible fate, the, the furious rabies, uh, if, if one comes down with this. A uh, person's behavior and mood is drastically altered, anxiety, hallucinations, confusion, paranoia, terror. And they tend to experience both a profound thirst and a severe inability to quench that thirst. Hmm. So what does all this mean? Well, keep in mind that saliva is central to rabies transmission. Uh, you know, if you think of, if you just hear the words rabid dog, the image that probably comes to mind is that of a dog uh, frothing at the mouth, right? With uh, frothing saliva. Right. And it, it's generally understood that I guess the saliva is what transmits the disease like if you are bitten by a dog that has rabies or by an animal that has rabies the saliva will transmit it to your blood is that a a real route of transmission yes that is the primary route of transmission um bites and scratches uh are are the most common ways that it is uh just transmitted there are other ways you know basically any uh infected fluid um could do it uh, but those are uncommon compared to bites and scratches, especially when you're, you know, think of a dog, think of, think of even, you know, a bat or, or any other uh, organism that would carry rabies. The bite is the thing. Uh, and it's steered in these cases by, you know, enhanced aggression and, uh, and altered behavior. And seemingly, you know, pri- the mouth is primed to transmit the, the virus by excess infectious frothing saliva. Okay, so much in the same way that respiratory viruses that are spread by aerosols or droplets might tend to cause the infected person to cough or sneeze in order to further spread themselves to other people, uh, this disease that is spread often by uh, saliva into blood through bites, uh, it, it would tend to cause the infected animal froth in the mouth with a lot of infectious saliva and to be irritable or or aggressive in ways that would lead to biting. Right. And that brings us back to this question of hydrophobia. Like then then for what reason, you know, seemingly like what role does does the fear uh and does this terror at the idea of water have to do with anything? Um so in in, in humans this appears to manifest as a kind of panic that sets in when presented with water and difficulty in or inability to drink, like attempts to drink may result in spasms. There is some clinical footage you can find online of of individuals uh, that have been diagnosed with rabies uh, attempting to drink water. And I, I do not, I do not, it's very disturbing footage, so I don't recommend seeking it out. But if you find yourself in need of a uh, uh, of uh, of the visuals for this, uh, there there is some documentation online. 
I believe a case in, in Vietnam uh, is, uh, is typically, um, uh, typically cited here. Now, does the difficulty with drinking water uh, when someone is infected to ra- with rabies usually have something to do with uh, difficulty in, in muscle control for like swallowing through neurological routes? Yes, yes, definitely so. And the, but, and the insidious nature of all this, though, is that since the individual is prohibited from drinking water by the infection, um, or, or at least the, the, uh, drinking water becomes excruciatingly difficult. Uh, saliva production increases, you have hypersalivation, and they can't swallow the excess saliva, um, and, that's, and they can't wash away this excess fro- uh, frothing saliva. So in other words, it primes the victim's mouth to be this potent transmitter of the virus, especially through a bite. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it, it has a real insidious quality to it. But as, as horrible as rabies is, again, fortunately, there are vaccines that exist. Right. Yes. So uh, again, all a great reminder, yeah, get your pet vaccinated for rabies. And if you come into contact with, a, with an animal that, uh, that has rabies or may have had rabies, uh, you definitely need to go to a doctor. Uh, they can take care of it. You don't want this. This is, this is not an illness don't you wait. want running its course. Yeah. Now, I wanted to share another example, though, that seems to go or potentially goes in the opposite direction. Uh, rabies in, in inhibits thirst and, and, and alters thirst in that direction. Uh, but if we look to, uh, to, to the world of the horsehair worm, we see something uh, that, uh, that, that may possibly uh, be involved in generating excessive thirst in the host. Hmm. So uh, this would uh, have to do with uh, uh, parasitoid worms from the phylum uh, nematomorpha. Uh, they're known as horsehair worms because they're thread-like round worms that resemble the hair of a horse's tail or mane. Now, uh, some of you may have seen these before. Um, these are creatures uh, that uh, you'll sometimes find living free in a puddle or stream. I think I saw one once like this while, while walking on... Uh, on, on, on uh, my mom's property, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you can also see them occasionally uh, burst out of the body of a cricket, mantis, beetle, or other host organism, very much like a xenomorph. Oh, now, maybe I was seeing something else, but I know I've seen video of something that was like a long, thin worm that was just gradually spooling out of a cricket's exoskeleton to uh, just, and it just kept spooling and spooling and spooling, almost like the clown car where, you know, 50 clowns get out of a Volkswagen, but it's a worm that seems bigger than the cricket it was inside. Yes. And it's, it's crazy to watch. I have a very vivid memory of being in a junior high band environment and there was a cricket on the floor and somebody in, in a neighboring section was grossed out by the presence of the cricket. And so they stomped it. And then once they had stomped the cricket, this horsehair worm began emerging from the cricket, which, of course, only further grossed out the individual who'd stomped the cricket. So there's kind of there's some sort of uh, weird, uh, horrific justice in that. Like, if you think the cricket's gross, well, just wait till you see what the encore is. Surely it helped that in band practice that day you were playing Carmina Burana. <laughs> yeah, if only. So um, the interesting thing here is that the adults uh, of this species and these, uh, these, these organisms, they are free living uh, in the water. Uh, but the, the larvae are, um, are parasitic and grow to adulthood inside the body of an insect. 
So um, I think you can all imagine how this probably goes down. Male and female horsehair worms mate in damp soil uh, and fresh water, and then the the female lays millions of eggs. These eggs hatch, and the tiny uh, larvae insist on vegetation near the water's edge. And uh, then what happens? Well, a cricket or some other suitable host drops by. Uh, it ends up eating that larva one way or another. Um, uh, either, either the you know, like a cricket is eating the grass, or uh, like a, a mantis is going to eat the the larva itself. And so, what happens then is a like a cricket comes along and it uh, it eats uh, the, the grass that has this uh, this larva on it. Or if it's a carnivorous mantis, well, then it eats uh, a cricket that has already been uh, infected uh, by uh, the, the larva. In either case, uh, the larva winds up inside of another organism. The cyst dissolves, and then the juvenile worm escapes, bores through the gut wall, and starts absorbing nutrients from the host organism. This worm has a move fast and break things uh, philosophy. It is a it is a disruptor of the internal organs of its host. Right, and at this point, it's kind of it's kind of like uh, you can imagine it like a stowaway in the hold of a ship. You know, it's it's rummaging around. It's uh, eating uh, some of the stored food supplies. Maybe eating the occasional crew member on that ship, um, mm. and, and, and otherwise also damaging the ship. But it doesn't need uh, if you're a stowaway, a human stowaway on a ship. What do you want to do? You want to get to a port somewhere, right? right. And uh, and likewise with this worm, it needs to get to water or damp soil in order to uh, continue its life cycle. Uh, now, if if something happens to the cricket, if it gets stomped in uh, on the floor of a middle school band room, it's going to escape. It's going to um, uh, you know abandon ship, uh, but it needs to get to damp soil or fresh water. So it may be moving fast and breaking things, but it it's going to try to do so in such a way that it ends up at a certain place when, when the whole thing goes kaput. Right. It needs to steer the host in the right direction. And so this is where we get that bit of parasitic hijacking in action. Um, or at least that's, that's one hypothesis of exactly what's going on. That the worm instills a crazed thirst in the host so that it seeks out water. That's uh, sometimes referred to as the thirst hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, an alternate hypothesis states that the worm simply waits till the host finds water on its own, and then it jumps out. And it's my understanding that we're really not 100% sure what happens. Though there, there's some, some interesting evidence uh, for, for both, uh, both hypotheses. Uh, Ed Yong, in a 2014 TED Talk, um, mentioned that the, there's research that uh, indicates that this may occur uh, because the, uh, the organism releases proteins that uh, alter the cricket's uh, uh, brain functionality. Uh, so, and, and there does seem to be some sort of, of, it seems like there is a strong case to be made that some sort of hijacking is taking place. And if that's occurring, uh, it may be pushing the animal towards water via thirst. Okay, so I guess that would mean you might be able to notice this if you had a place where a bunch of insects were getting infected by this parasite, they would be showing a, a lot of drinking behavior, a lot of water drinking behavior. Right, uh, but then again, yeah, there's also the the other argument. Well, it's just it's waiting until the water is until it's until it's drinking. Uh, even mm. even that though would be pretty impressive because it's that like how does the how does the worm know what's going on inside the darkness of the cricket or the darkness of the mantis that enables the the stowaway to know that there is water or damp soil close at hand. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Uh, there, I was looking at uh, some of the the papers that discuss this. There was a this is of course this is a, a much older paper now, but uh, there was a 2001 study published in the German journal Zoologischer Anzeiger um, that says that the thirst hypothesis has been supported by observations of quote unquote suicidal behavior by infected mantises in southern France that would seemingly jump into the water and then immediately out comes the worm. Uh, so that would be a case where, yeah, like it, the, the mantis is not just going to the water; it is the, uh, to, to drink, and then it bursts out. It's actually jumping in. It's 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 giving up the ghost. Uh, so, uh, uh, but I guess with that, you still would have to ask your question: At what point is there some a hijacking of behavior? Was it the was seeking the water to begin with, or was it something that kicked in when uh, the creature was close to water? Mm. So we're not sure exactly, uh, you know, which way to, way to go on this, uh, as, as far as I, I understand, based on uh, the research I was looking at. But it seems like either way, uh, you're getting into these interesting, um, uh, you're getting into the relationship between the host organism and water. You know, something mm-hmm. about its uh, its bodily awareness of water, or the uh, the thirst or desire to be in close proximity to water, and of course, that is ultimately what the parasite wants as well. Right. So the parasite either needs a mechanism of making the host go drink water or knowing when the host is drinking water. Right. Oh, and in case anybody's uh, worried, uh, it's my understanding that, that occasionally humans end up ingesting these things, but I don't think there's, there's ever been any evidence or, or anything to support the idea that they're capable of hijacking human behavior. Again, if that is indeed what's happening uh, in the case of crickets and mantises. Well, what happens when humans do ingest them? Um, it's just kind of gross. They could like vomit oh. them up. Uh, I was looking, there were two Japanese cases reported in 2012, uh, due to the accidental ingestation of infected insects. I think in these cases, they, this has occurred via the consumption of vegetables that had uh, those insisted larvae on them. You ever notice some vegetables seem like they'd be a lot better at hiding little stowaways than others? I- oh Yeah. I have this consistent problem with broccoli. I, I love broccoli. I love cooking with it. But I, a number of times I've been like giving it a rinse before I cook it or something. And then I'm like, oh, there's just a bug up in the, up in the tree <laughs> limbs there. <laughs> it's hiding out in a little fork in the, in the florets. That's true. I mean, it, the, I guess the, it's, kind of a, it's kind of the thing about broccoli, right, is that the thing that makes it so delicious, that's so, so great to cook because you get uh, you know, all the, the, the oil or the, the seasoning, it ends up just getting embedded there in all the little nooks and crannies. It also mm-hmm. means there are all these additional places that I guess something could potentially hide, or you could just end up with some dirt or gr- grit in there. Maybe I'm just getting my broccoli from really buggy sources. It's pretty like, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I get like CSA broccoli. That's, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's really nice, good stuff, but there's just like a, there's just a big old bug in there. Just uh, just like tarantulas crawling out of it through your kitchen and stuff. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> I mean, it's all just a good reminder. Uh, you know, wash wash your vegetables, everybody. Even yeah. if you're not sure they need it, you know, give them a once over. Why not? Right. You'll feel better about it, especially <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this episode whilst cooking. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out thirst part three. Uh, what do you think, Joe? Do you think we'll be back with thirst for colon thirst for knowledge? The return of Jack Thirst. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we will be back. I'm sure of it. Yeah? Like this Thursday back? This Thursday back? Yes. Thursday. This Thursday. Thirst part four. Thirst for more knowledge. The final only chapter. On the final chapter. Only on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Or some other topic. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. 
All right. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. They're in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. Um, I think there's a, there's a, yeah, there is a link to our, uh, our T-shirt store there if you just want to pick up some sort of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind-related design on a shirt or a sticker. Um, we actually have a, uh, we may be getting some new ones in the, uh, the weeks and months ahead. And I know there are some, uh, some designs by listeners, uh, that I've, uh, that I've added in recent months. So there's a Leshy t-shirt in there. There's a, there's a kind of psychedelic looking mushroom in there. And, uh, let's see, what's the other one? Oh yeah. There's the, um, Pandora's box, uh, shirt. Those are all wonderful designs. So uh, check those out if you want to. Um, they're pretty fun. And let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Tuesday and Thursday, core episodes. Wednesday's Artifact. Monday's Listener Mail. Friday is Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.